Greetings, greetings, greetings from the Feed the Ball studio. You are back inside the Feed the Ball salon where, for volume 14, you'll be listening to me, Derek Duncan, architecture editor for Golf Digest, and Jib Urbina, golf course builder extraordinaire and the man who knows everyone, talk to Forrest Richardson about a variety of golf-related topics. Forrest is a man with a broad array of talents and interests, and he's been in the golf design business for several decades working primarily in the American West. He was recently elected president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, following in the footsteps of 74 past presidents, and he enters the office with an eye toward the future and some keen ideas about what his profession needs to do to continue to keep pace with the times and stay relevant going forward into the future. We'll discuss some of those ideas and what he has in mind for the organization, along with the usual banquet table of artistic and architectural topics. There's one thing you can do to help the show, aside from giving me a follow on Twitter and Instagram, at FeedTheBall. And that's go to your preferred podcast provider and subscribe to Feed the Ball and give it a star rating and review while you're there. You can also send in questions or DM me on Twitter with comments for future episodes. So let's get right into some musings from Jim Urbina, followed by a delightful conversation with Forrest Richardson. Roll tape. You know, Derek, we've talked to architects for, for months now, and we've learned a lot. We've delved into a lot of ideas. And as Pete once told me, Jim, we're not architects, we're designers, we're builders. But I want to read a passage from Mr. Donald Ross, the first president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, a position that Forrest Richardson is going to take in for the 2021 year. And he talked about his design standards. And if you don't mind, I'd like to quote those from Mr. Donald Ross. Absolutely. Please do. And I quote, make each hole present a different problem. So arrange it that every stroke must be made with a full concentration and attention necessary to good golf. Build each hole in such a manner that it wastes none of the ground at my disposal and take advantage of every possibility I can see. That was his simple design standards, Mr. Donald Ross. And each of us has a standard and I've often wondered, and I've, re- I've regrettably not asked all of our guests what their design standard is, because it's kind of cliche. But today, I do want to ask Forrest Richardson. I do want to ask uh, the president, the 75th uh, president of the American Society, American Society of Golf Course Architects, what is that design standard? Uh, do you ever think when you step on a golf course, Derek, and you know the architect of record, do you wonder and say to yourself, I wonder what his design standard is? I, I sure do, Jim, but it's usually kind of coming from a negative place. <laughs> thinking, <laughs> what the hell was he thinking? Like, what, what possibly could be the standard that we can apply to this particular hole, of course? And that's just because, I've said before, like I, I've, I've played a lot of not so great golf courses in my life uh, on my job and traveling around places like Florida, <laughs> seeing a lot of uh, <laughs> cookie cutter designs. Um, I don't know, Jim, I'll ask you, I'll flip it back to you. Do you have a design standard? And is that something common amongst most designers? Do you think that, that uh, people in your profession do have a design standard or design philosophy? I think that we do. I think it evolves over the, uh, over the, of the course of the construction of the golf course. 
I think, Derek, when you set out to have a philosophy and you apply it to the landform given to you, if you're very concrete in your design standard, what you hope to achieve, I don't think you could coax the best out of the land. Mm -hmm. But if you allow it to evolve and you allow it to let the land talk to you and, and, and create features um, without plans, without ideas, without a standard, I think that you can achieve a far greater uh, a design, a far greater look of the golf course. But I do understand, Derek, that you have to start with a plan and you have to start with the routing. But after that, I'm not so sure that you should have a design standard. I think you should let the land give you what you what it gives you. Although you would say, well, these greens are good or these greens are awful. Is that the design standard or these bunkers are beautiful to look at, but hard to play out of? Would that have been a design standard? I try to look at each piece of land differently when I build golf courses and I've built some of the most impressive beautiful looking golf courses uh, in the last 20 years. I've been very lucky. But if I would have had a standard going in, if there was a concrete idea going in that we couldn't deviate from it, then I'm, a, I'm not sure that we would have coaxed the best out of the land. But Donald Ross was very simple in his uh, appreciation of what he needed to do. And I'm curious when I play golf courses, if I could say to myself, boy, I realized what his design standard was. I know what he was trying to do here. And you say you've played those golf courses in Florida. There was no design standard. <laughs> I'm just <Yeah>. curious. <laughs> I'm just curious uh, what Forrest Richardson's design standard is, because I've played a few of his golf courses. They're pretty cool. Uh, I'm curious if he went in with a solid idea or did he let it evolve? Well, let's be honest. Even those designers, and I'm thinking of contemporary designers because I can't speak to what was going on 100 years ago uh, with any you know, real knowledge, but design standards currently change a lot. You know, They always have in the modern era the pack of designers, You know, the, the rank and file, look around and see what's selling and, and what's popular or what's being splashed in magazines. And many over the years have been quick to adapt whatever design standard they have to uh, a new design standard, whatever they think might, might help them get a job or, or, uh, you know, advanced, uh, their career in some way. So that, that's a cynical viewpoint, but it, it's, it's true. Now, if you look at designers, like I think Pete Dye, you could speak to this as well, Jim had a design standard and it was asking players to, it's and it was maybe complex, you know, asking players to psychologically analyze the state of their game and the hole in front of them and, and, and reconcile the two. Do they have the nerve to hit a shot? Moving holes and shot shapes back and forth. Uh, th these are things that he, you know, you could you could draw through lines throughout every course that he built and say, yeah, these are the things. These were his design standards. You see some commonality, um, but we're we're used to this age that we've been in the last twenty years or so, where the the best golf courses that are being developed are on really often beautiful pieces of land that were are suitable to golf in ways that the the Florida courses that I've played weren't suitable to golf. You know where golf was secondary in importance to other other concerns. And when you get these nice pieces of land that we've seen developed in the last twenty years, it I think I will agree with what you're saying. It behooves a designer not to go in with a preconceived notion of, of what they want to build. 
if you have a marginal piece of land, you know, you can, you can do the Reese Jones and say, you know, the, I'm going to, I want to highlight visibility. You know, I want the player to stand on the tee and see what's out there and know what to do. I mean, that's something that I think Reese does on most of his golf courses, the way he, he presents greens, but on a really nice piece of land, you know, you can think of the Bill Coor method or the, the Rod Whitman's I, I look, but I do not see, you know, I, I'm just going to take what the land gives me. I'm going to be honest to it and, and we'll see what comes out the other end. So the fact that we're getting better properties to develop probably obviates some of the need or the importance of an architect or designer having a, a standard approach to building golf courses. You know, uh, well put, well said, because I think that when you're, when you're asked to lay out a golf course within a land plan that has streets and crossings and homes I guess that you have to have a plan and you have to adhere to that plan so that you don't deviate from those corridors. I totally agree. I totally understand that. But I can also say that, that uh, as you said, with good pieces of land and the, the willingness to go just outside of the corridor that you thought you wanted to be in or extend a green farther than you thought you wanted it to be, uh, that is the most creative freedom that you could have and not be hamstrung by by routings and corridors within a land plan. Uh, well put, well said. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with a, a designer having a, a philosophy or a standard or a, or a, a concept of, of what they like to do on most of their projects. We're, if you equate it to a structural architect, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright had common themes that he applied to, to his houses and his buildings. Uh, Philip Johnson would do the same thing. Many architects through time, I am pay, like the use of materials. These are guys who had a vision of what they wanted to build and what they wanted to project out into the world, and they and they stuck to it. And it, it of course, evolved through time, but they had very clear visions. They were they're artists in that sense. Same with painting. Painters have you know distinct styles, and they may go through phases where those change a little bit, but they'll go through periods where they do the same exploration of of, of substance and color and style and 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 content and uh, you know if it's allegorical or, or realistic. So it's not it's not too bad for an architect to to present that. And that's one thing you know. I've always liked about Reese Jones is because there is a sort of a, a commonality throughout his work. These these themes that you see, same with Pete Dye, and I think that I think there's a place for that in golf design. So it's and that's preferable to me than than someone who who doesn't. And if you could look at ten courses by architect X and not be able to to see any common common themes, then you know I'm I'm not sure that that person has much of a vision. <laughs> and you know what to be fair as you said you have to have a budget you have to know the size of the greens that you're going to build you have to know how many bunkers you're going to put in within reason you have to know the widths of the fairways the number of tee boxes the length of the golf course you have to have that kind of vision uh, but unfortunately those are the visions that have been handed down to us for years. As I said to you many years ago, what if I found a land, piece of land that had 21 holes on it? You know, that's my vision, uh, simple and plain. Would you say, wait a minute, don't, you can't get out of the, the, the role and, and you can't get out of the, of, of the schematic of 18 holes. Uh, so I guess you do have to have a plan. You do have to have a vision, size of greens, number of bunkers, What's the fairways? You have to have that. But after that, man, let the creative juices flow. Yeah, and that's something that we're going to is going to come up in our talk with Forrest about that having a schematic and can you break that? And 
are there alternative forms of golf that we should be exploring? I think he's very open to experimentation and, and breaking the mold and presenting golf in, in new and imaginative ways. So I'm looking forward to hearing his thoughts. He is the, the newest president of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And, you know, I think that position maybe is, I want, I'm wondering if that's a little bit like we talked in the last episode with Kyle Phillips about how, how green chairmen or, or chairwomen or committees often want to put their stamp you know, on the golf course during their tenure. And so they, they build the pond with a fountain in it. And <laughs> I'm wondering if there's a correlation between being the president of the ASGCA and, and if, if, if Forrest feels the need, hopefully he won't build a pond with a fountain, uh, the equivalent of that. But if he feels the need to to take ownership of, of the position while he's got it and, and make it and leave his mark, so to speak, Jim. And to leave your mark is is different for everybody. To To leave your mark and to have associates surrounding you that breathe and love and do the things that you do that's a good thing to to build your membership to to have a a a vision that you you would like others to think about uh that that is part of that leaving something about what forrest richardson did for the society that the society of architects what did i what did i do for the society what did I get from it and what did I give to it? And that's what I'm really curious to hear about about the ASGCA and from Forrest himself. Okay, well, that's that's a good ending point. I think it's time for us to flip over to that conversation and we'll do our best to press those questions to Forrest and, and I'm just as eager as you are to hear the answers. So if you don't mind, Jim, I think we'll do it. Let's talk to Forrest Richardson. Can't wait. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, you get to see the background of my lovely little the the mess. See the mess there? That's the mess. Golfclubatlas.com? Yeah, way up there. Way up there in the back. It's a poster. What was, what was that about? Uh we uh, a long time ago I did a uh, I did a poster at Hatch Showprint in um uh, Nashville. Famous, famous poster house that used goes way back into the 30s and 40s. They used to do the the little playbills for all of the Nashville recording artists. Really? Yeah. So they cool. did a they did a letterpress um, poster for Golf Club Atlas. Cool. This is this is the home office. So this is the world headquarters, <laughs> a home office. Yeah. No, I like it. <laughs> but, I like uh, it. But yeah, I, I tell the story. I, you know, I got rid of all my employees. I put them out of their misery and uh, so they're all, they're all, they're all off doing their own thing now, which is fine. How many employees did you have? for? Oh, uh, well, when we, when we were doing, um, when I was trying to get into graphic uh, golf architecture and we've been doing branding and graphic design, we had like nine or 10 people. And then when, when I made the leap to golf course design, no people. And then I had four at one time. So we had like, you know, there were four or five of us one time when we were really busy with stuff. I don't know when that was. I can't even remember back then. Well, Forrest, I'd like to congratulate you on becoming president of the ASGCA. Although I, I, I hear that Jan Beljan is contesting the results and refuses to concede. So <laughs> where do we go from here? Oh. 
I, I, I use the line that I, I got here without having to do any debates. So that's, uh, that's my, that's my line. But uh, now it's, it's an, it's an interesting year to be president. You know, we don't really know what's ahead in the next year. You know, it's kind of hard to predict. So, you know, we're, we're, we're right now just planning to try to make the best of it and to, um, you know, roll with the flow. I was going to ask Forrest, was it important to be uh, as a group working meeting, being around each other? Was that as one of the most important aspects of the society? I, I think so. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, it, you know, the camaraderie of people who all do the same thing, uh, but do it differently has, has a great profound, I think, benefit. And um, that, that, so we're doing these regional gatherings. I think we're up to 10 or 11 of them. I just played in one Saturday, we went out to Talking Stick and, uh, and played, um, and there were about, oh, I guess we had seven, six, seven members, and then a few people who joined our group, you know, by invitation. So it was, it was fun. It was, I mean, and there's been, um, I think we're doing 12 of them, and, and people are really enjoying them. So it's, and, you'll, it's and you'll be a part of all of them? As, as oh, the God, no. <laughs> no. 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 Um, I, I think... Um, some of them, we've had some leadership there and some of them, frankly, you know, we haven't, but they, they've been to, there's been a one, there was one up in Poppy Hills. We, we, we got together and saw Poppy Hills and then we all drove down to Spanish Bay and, and had a good time there looking out over the ocean and talking and, uh, and, and social distancing too. Um, and then um, there was one at Prairie Dunes that I really wanted to go to, but I didn't make that. I couldn't make that. I had a conflict. And then there's like a couple of them in Florida, a couple in the Midwest. And um, I don't know. I can't remember where the others are, maybe Texas or something. But um, we, we, we've tried that before. But boy, with this COVID thing, it's become real important, I think. So, yeah. yeah. Forrest, you've been in the association for a long time. Is the president position, something that you wanted? Is that, when was that over on your radar? Is that something that uh, typically a, a designer would love to hold that position? Where did it, how, how much did it matter to you? I, well, it, it's a great honor. And um, uh, of course, when I came into the society, which was 20 some years ago, I don't think I had any idea of all of, of you know, being a part of the leadership, although I was very active and involved. Uh, and I think maybe, gosh, I don't know. I might've, I might've thought to myself, gee, at some time, would it be, would it be fun or, or, uh, fulfilling to be a part of the leadership? I suppose I had that thought. Um, but it was only after being in the society for many, many years and working with other presidents and other, you know, boards and, and leaders, um, but certainly it's an honor. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous honor. Jack Snyder, my mentor, Arthur Jack Snyder was a past president and um, I've known plenty, plenty of past presidents. When I was a young kid, there were these, I was writing a newsletter on golf course design. I was 13, 14 years old. And um, there were all these people that were gracious to subscribe to my newsletter, Ed C, Bob Graves, Dick Nugent, Ken Killian, um, 
Joe Finger, who was who was a member for a while, I remember, and and there were plenty of others. But that that that's when I first heard about the society. You know, it's like oh wow, there's a, there's actually a group for golf course architects. You know, amazing. You know, <laughs> so and that was that was back in the in the seventies. Jim and I were talking about this before, and we were equating it. We had a, a podcast recently. We were talking about uh, historic clubs and and uh, the green committee, the green chairman. Sometimes, not all the time, but often will come into that position and want to leave his or her mark on the golf course and uh, kind of drive through some sort of renovation or, or tree planting program or or something else. Um, and that's that's sort of the uh, a negative view of of what power can do to people. But do you have, do you feel like there are certain things that you want to accomplish? Do you feel like you have to attempt to move the ASGCA in a certain direction? Uh, I think in my case, um, besides, you know, being here in COVID, which is kind of interesting, I think in my case, I I really want to see the continuation of our effort to grow the organization and by that, I mean to, to be more inclusive. Um, a few years ago, um, I dug out the charter back in 1947. Mm-hmm. And the charter that Donald Ross and the other founders had for the ASGCA included, a, and I'll paraphrase it, it was basically to foster the career development of young golf course architects or, or people coming into the profession. And I think we've done a, a admittedly bad job at that. I, I don't think we've actually done that very well. I think actually, if you go back to the fifties and sixties, maybe we were doing a little better job of it where we would bring in the, the organization was so small, you know, back in 1960, whatever, that I think the tendency was to bring in apprentices and people working for other people and they would they would be associate members or whatever they called them then. And, you know, if if they didn't screw up and, and they were polite, then they became members. And and uh, and then that when when golf architecture started, you know, booming in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s and there were more and more people applying for membership, I think that that sort of element of the society was lost a little bit, meaning mm-hmm. that I don't think we were, um, the, the organization, I wasn't part of it in the, in the 90s, but the organization was not really looking out for these younger people, you know, that were working for other people. And, um, and I think that was a mistake. And, um, and here we are in a completely different time with new influences in golf architecture. You know, it's, it's done all different ways, right? I mean, I mean, Jim, you don't work the way I do, and I don't work the way, you know, the people at Tom Fazio work, and they don't work the way the people at Ernie Els work, and they don't work the way that uh, some of the guys in Europe work or some of the guys down in in, uh, in Australia. So it, it, there's so many ways to get from point A to point B, and there always have been, but I think maybe more so today. I agree. Uh, Derek, I was in my f- first couple of years that when I was starting out in the business, I had met several uh, society members, Arthur Hills in Phoenix, uh, 
Mr. Panks, Mr. Gary Panks in Phoenix while I was working for Pete. And so I saw this society uh, as a society that, you know, maybe I just I just didn't fit in because I didn't see myself as 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 the way that Mr. Panks or Mr. Hills or several of the architects that worked in the valley were working. So I just thought, well, you know, that's a that's a society that that I don't know much about and I never pursued it. So Forrest is right. Everybody did it differently. And today, here we are in the year 2020. Uh, what's going to happen for the next 50, 60 years? Maybe even simply 10, Forrest, if that, if that makes sense. Well, the world's moving really fast. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I, I quote the book, uh, Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman quite often. And, and, what I learned in that book, if there was anything you take away from it, is that right now at this very time is the slowest time any of us will ever experience in our lives. This split second where we're, we're talking right now is the slowest time we'll ever have. It's just going to get faster and it's getting faster a lot rapid, more rapidly. And that means that golf is probably destined for some changes. Um, and, and that's kind of part of my message. But you know, back to Derek's question, I think if anything, that would be something I want to foster more than anything, whether it'll happen during my presidency. Um, I think we're on the way to it, by the way. We've already made some, some, uh, I guess you'd call them structural changes in the way we're, we're organized to allow for um, opening up our tent to embrace some practitioners who just uh, maybe have felt like you, Jim, that, you know, you don't, you don't fit in or whatever. What, what's interesting about that is there's always been a diversity of, of the way people go about working. Like, you know, Pete and Alice, you know, my goodness, they didn't work like, you know, Robert Trent Jones Jr. or Robert Trent Jones Sr. Or, uh, you know, I, th I think of, we, ha we have members that are um, Jim Ng, you know, is a good example. I mean, Jim Ng, you know, I mean, his plans are are some of the most elaborate concoctions of drawing and CAD that I've ever seen. But you know, I wouldn't, I would never criticize them because I've also seen some really creative, amazing stuff built. You know, with with those plans. You know, and 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 yet, I could I could also look at Bill Coor, you know, who who doesn't really rely on elaborate plans. I, I think we'd all agree. And, and, and a lot of the work is generated, you know, once it gets to a certain point, a lot of the work is generated in the field. Um, the, the way, the, the way that is, um, you know, so popular among some of, I call them the architecture purists, you know, I mean, that's, it's funny. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I, I get, I get these comments like, uh, well, you know, plans, plans are useless. Well, plans are, are, are useless in, for some sites. You know, when I worked in Mexico, I think I had, uh, I think I had seven or eight golf holes that literally the plans were blank and it just had a big square of text that said to be field uh, directed by the golf course architect. But then I had, then I had, you know, 11 or, or so holes that were terribly complex with groundwater intrusion and, and an old landfill site and, you know, 20 or 30 
feet deep of sand that needed to be relocated and, and, and dunes that were blowing away. And, and, and I, it's, I don't want to get into all the, the nuances of it, but you know, that was a site where it was interesting. I had both things going on. I had the freedom to be able to really create something in the field, but then I had these other holes that were, that were, um, that if there wasn't plans, it could have been disaster. You know what I mean? They might not be there today if there weren't plans, you know, and then, and then there are projects. I mean, I'm, I'm someone that grew up working in the West here where some of our sites are not conducive to moving material around and, you know, working like, you know, I've, I've, I've worked on sites that are completely manufactured, you know, but that's just the difference of how we work. I guess my point is there's different voices and different ways of getting from point A to point B today, but, but in the society, there always has been, I think maybe, it's just been a perception reality issue. That's what I would describe well, it as. Well, Forrest, what would that look like? You mentioned, you know, this this desire, if, you know, if you could do one of the things you'd like to do is to have the organization be more inclusive and bring in, uh, I don't know if you mean younger or, or more diverse or, or maybe all of the above, but what would that look like and, and how do you accomplish that? Because I, if I'm not mistaken, somebody like there was a point in time and maybe it's it was the case up until a year or two ago where somebody like Jim Urbina might not even be able to be accepted into the organization because he didn't have X amount of original golf courses under his name or, or so on and so forth. But he's well, clearly it, qualified one of the best, you know, designers in the business. Yeah, he absolutely is. And I've, I've mentioned that to him. In fact, <laughs> I was, I was going through Minneapolis airport once and we saw That's each right. other and I mentioned That's it right. to him. And, um, well, here's what I would say. First of all, I will take responsibility for, anything that's occurred in the past. I, I think the society has not done a good job of, of um, clearly expressing the requirements for membership. And part of that is because I don't think that we, um, we might've formalized it too much at, you know, because it was the thing to do maybe back in the eighties mm-hmm. was to formalize it. But right now it's as simple as having uh, the equivalent in a body of work of three 18-hole courses. And we know over the last several years that most people coming into the ASGCA do not have three new courses, okay? So their, their portfolio is a body of work, and it includes bunker renovations and, and T programs and nine holes and three holes this year and six holes the next year and a practice facility and a short game area and a short course. And, you know, I mean, it's just the, the, the world is completely different. So the, the, the way we look at membership requirements right now is, 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 is the person practicing? Do they have um, the credentials in terms of ethics and are they passionate about the business? And do they, do they have this equivalent body of work? Okay. That was totally different. I mean, used to be, I'll pick someone, you know, you could pick anyone, but pick Greg Muirhead, you know, one of our past presidents works for Reese Jones. When, when he came into the society, society, I'm quite sure that he had so many courses, you know what I mean? And they, they were attributed to him and Reese said, yeah, Greg did this, you know, he, he led this project. And, and so here's this, body of work that was real simple to understand, you know, so many golf courses. Mm-hmm. When I came in, I came in with two nine hole courses and even that was sort of odd, you know, two nine hole courses that equaled one, you know, of course, 
And I, I pointed out, by the way, that two nine-hole courses is actually much, much tougher than one 18-hole course because you have two sets of clients and two you know, two sites and, you know, two contractors and two, two, two groups of shapers and, and whatever. So, um, but that's, that's, we've done a bad job, I think, historically in, um, in expressing this. So you asked what it would look like. Well, we, we had a little gathering here in 2019, uh, at Ohupi Match Club and uh, Gil, Gil Hans hosted it. And, um, we had, uh, don't hold me to these numbers, but I mean, we had 15 members of the society and we probably had 10 to 15 non-members and we invited them in, um, by invitation, but, but it grew a little bit, you know, people found out about, it. Oh, can I come? Well, sure. You know, if there's space, you can come. And the idea was to, to share our, um, gathering with, with people who, um, it wasn't a recruitment that, that wasn't the purpose of it. It was just to, to open the tent and have some events where we could interact with people who we don't normally get to interact with. And it, and it was great. You know, we had, we had a bunch of faces there that were fun to be with, including by the way, several of Gil's key people, you know, who, who had worked on a hoopy and, and other things. So what would it look like? It would probably look similar to that. Um, if I were to guess, I would say that we're moving toward a program, like I mentioned earlier, that was similar to the maybe the way it happened in the 60s, where you invited younger uh, assistants and people working for other people in, uh, and then eventually they became members. And, and that would be the way that I would see it. You know, I, I, I would see, first of all, the, the, um, the idea is hey, would you like to hang out with a bunch of people that have a common interest, you know, that like talking about bunkers and native grasses and sites and terrains and, and uh, short par fours and whether they're better than not so short par fours. And, you know, is, you know, the par three, should it be 200 yards or 110? What makes a better par three? And, um, and can a par five hole still withstand the modern golfer and modern equipment. I mean, there are some things that it's just fun to talk with other golf course architects about, right? I mean, I agree. That's what I, that's what I think anyway. I agree. And I look at this, I have this photo of the original 14 architects at uh, Pinehurst. I'm sure you have that photo too, Forrest, that includes uh, December 5th, 1947. That includes William Bell, Robert White, Langford, Bruce Harris, Donald Ross, Stanley Thompson, Mr. Diddle, the people that weren't there, Perry Maxwell, Red Lawrence. And I'm thinking to myself, in 1947, what were they thinking their society was going to do? And really, was it the same thing you just said, Forrest? We're going to gather together. We're going to talk about what we're doing. And really, it's the it's the you know, I'm doing this. What are you doing? It's the learning and sharing of ideas. And exactly. How exactly. cool would it have been to be there December 5th, 1947 at Pinehurst? Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, um, one of those people there was JR, um, J, I'm sorry, JB McGovern. Yes. And, uh, and, and I think, and I've made this comment before that I don't believe that J.B. McGovern at the time really had any work attributed to himself. He was assisting Donald Ross and, um, 
And I think that that's maybe where we lost our way a little bit was that, you know, we want to, we want to get back to that. And, um, and we, we do want to see, it isn't just younger people. I mean, you know, I think it's also people that, that have, you know, some people started this career late, you know, they, they didn't get into the career until, um, later on. And, and, um, some people also, well, I, I was a good example. I was, I was a, uh, golf architect who didn't really qualify for membership or didn't think I did, you know, for probably 10 or more years. And then finally kind of woke up one day and said, well, wait a minute, I kind of do, I guess. And, and I looked into it a little further and, you know, I became a member, I think it was 2000, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, but here, here, when I became a member in 2000, that was, uh, you know, 50, uh, 50 years or more after JB McGovern was one of the founding members. And, yeah. and, and, you know, he was basically, I don't want to say he was an apprentice then, but I think he was definitely an assistant to Mr. Ross, probably not. I mean, I don't think there were too many JB McGovern golf courses in 1947. Right. Yeah. Had you already written your routings book and your bunkers and pits and other hazards? Had you written I, those already? No, I was, I, I wrote that about the same time I become a member. So that, so the routing book I wrote in, I think it was published in 2001. So I would have written it right about the time I was going through the membership application. And then the hazards book came five or six years later. Gotcha. The, book I, the book I wrote with Mark Fine. Yeah. Gotcha. But your, your intensity, your passion for the game, the architecture was already all there. You just chose later on in life to decide to be a part of the society. Yeah. And, and, and I think technically at that time, I probably maybe didn't qualify, you know, if you really look at the requirements then, you know, because I was, I was working with Jack Snyder um, and I, I was leading projects and, and responsible for projects, but there were, you know, there, there were, uh, you know, Jack was part of, that work. And so, you know, the question also was, you know, well, and then, and then I found out that, you know, it's not like you have to do a hundred percent of everything on those projects. That's not the point. Um, it's just, it's just, that was it your work? In other words, did you, you know, did you truly, you know, do most of the work here and there? I mean, every project is different too. I mean, I mean, some projects, um, have such complex environmental obstacles there's no way the golf course architect can take that on, you know, but the golf course architect might be responsible for a little bit of it. Um, and, and that's, that's the way we see all projects come in, you know, is the applicant who's interested in being a member will talk about, well, you know, here's what I did, you know, and and maybe the routing was a collaboration, You, you know, maybe, maybe the field work was shared with two or three people you know, or opposite, maybe the field work was where the applicant spent most of the time. And is that what you did for Schneider that you did a lot of the field work or, or? Well, it would Jack, um, we, we just worked together on everything. We kind of shared responsibilities and, and the answer is yes. On some projects, I would, I would kind of handle the field work, but I started doing, doing more and more routing and, you know, drafting and little green sketches and details for Jack. And, um, and then he was getting older and, and his wife had some health issues and he eventually had some serious uh, health problems. And I kind of just naturally sort of took over 
and then I would pay Jack. So he, in the beginning, he would pay me a little bit, you know, to help him. And then, and then there, there was a, there was a changing of the guard at some time. I'll always remember asking him a 19, uh, well, I guess it would have been probably just before maybe, maybe 1998 or sometime in there. Hey Jack, I'm thinking maybe I should change the name of the company to add my name, you know, to it. And, and he, he said, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Why don't you do that? <laughs> wow. What <Yeah>. a change. <laughs> well, it, you know, it was, um, it was by necessity too, because people were starting to call me and, and know me. And so, you know, it, it just made sense, but we always had separate companies. I never really formally worked for Jack. We just worked in association with each other. And, and in the beginning I helped him and, and uh, was kind of, his sidekick. And then when he got older and was unable to do a lot of traveling and whatever, I would always run things past him and send him a check every, every so often. So was he, only your, was he your only mentor or were there others? Well, he and, and Desmond Muirhead, I would say Desmond is someone I became good friends with. Uh, and uh, he supported me when I was writing my little newsletter as a kid. And, uh, and other people did too, you know, Ron Witten remembers the newsletter. I don't know what he was doing at the time, but Ron Witten has a collection of my newsletters and has threatened to release them and republish them, uh, because they were really crazy. I mean, I would draw, I was a mad magazine, uh, <laughs> Illustrator. I was a mad magazine aficionado. And yeah. so I, my newsletter had humor in it, like mad magazine, like I would have the impossible whole of the month with you know, 14 islands between the tea and the green. And uh, <laughs> so, so um, I did have some wacky ideas uh, over the four or five years. I guess it was four years maybe that I did the newsletter. And, uh, but Desmond was a great friend. He, um, one time I, I, I think it was my mother said, you know, it's okay. I'm happy to support your newsletter. You're, you know, you're learning a lot of stuff, but you really ought to charge the right amount uh, to cover postage and printing and whatever. <laughs> and so I, I, I thought, well, I don't know if people will pay more really for the newsletter. So I wrote this impassioned letter from the editor about how, if I didn't get more subscribers, I was going to stop publishing the, <laughs> the newsletter. And in the mail came a $75 check from Desmond Muirhead. And it basically said, don't worry <laughs> about, pardon me, the, uh, the, the money, just keep writing. You're doing a great job. So that was a, awesome. Yeah, it was, awesome. it was, it was, a, uh, it was a tremendous gesture on his part. And then I met him. Uh, I made arrangements to go see him when I think I was 14 years old or 15. And I remember my mother took me to Balboa Island in Newport and she refused to go up to the door with me. She said, no, you can do that. She went down and sat on a park bench and read a book. And I knocked on the door and Ella, his secretary, came to the door and she said something to the effect, my God, he's not even in college yet. He's still a kid. <laughs> so, and so I met all of these people. They were having a meeting. Keith Dewar was there. who was a very famous golf course builder at the time. And Desmond and Ella and there were some people from Desmond's office and they were all looking at plans for some grand project. This would have been back in 1970 uh, two or three or something like that, but it was fascinating. And he, he, uh, he, 
we, we, we remained friends for many years and, um, and he encouraged me, uh, in many ways. And, and it was fun to see him, uh, over the years. Could you put your finger on something that you carry with you in your design aesthetic or outlook today that you got from Mirrorhead? Uh, well, he was in his, before his impressionistic days, you know, where he began to marry art and symbolism with golf. I think he he always though believed in symbolism. I think the biggest thing is he spent an inordinate amount of time studying the culture surrounding a golf course site. So his writing about presenting to in Dubai or working in Japan or working in New Jersey or wherever he was going to be working on a course, he would, he would go to the bookstore and buy dozens and dozens of books to learn about Filipino culture or something. And he would end up knowing more about the culture of a place than the people he was actually going to meet. And I think it served him very well. And I've tried to, uh, to, to do that because I think it's important that golf courses have a relevance to where they're, they're located and the people, you know, in that area. Did you think that your 10 islands that you drew for your newsletter was really that wacky? And what keeps you from doing that today? <laughs> I'll tell you one golf hole I've had in my head for a long time, and that is, I call it the, the, the lighthouse hole, where you, you have, let's say, a par five, because we've talked about you know, how to make a true three-shot hole, right? So I've had this design of a hole that actually is two parallel fairways, one going out and one coming directly back at you, let's say, on the left. And the object is to hit past the lighthouse, which is at the end of the fairways in the middle of them. And then you have to somehow curve a ball backwards and the green is right back by the tee. And I'm, I'm serious, but I think it's a fascinating <laughs> concept. It's just the local rule is you have to go beyond the lighthouse and come back on the other side of it. And of course it doesn't have to be a lighthouse. It could be something else, but, um, and, you know, people would say, oh, well, Forrest, you're absolutely crazy. That will never work. And, and then, then you think of things you've seen in your career, like the pit at North Berwick and the wall behind the road hole and the, uh, you know, just keep going. There are some very fascinating golf holes out there that are, that are driven by local rules. And, you know, well, I mean, the, the barns and the sheds at the old course, right? I mean, those are seemingly bad ideas, but they've become part of culture. And, um, the part two that I did, uh, I wrote about the part two and I, Perry Dye once he, he had read my book where I'd written about the part two and he, he just was fascinated by it. And he said, well, I, I want to do one. And so we made an unofficial bet who would get to do one first. And, and I think I won technically cause I did one on a, on a course, you know, but, but I still want to do one on a, on a design. Cause I, I think, I think it's a fascinating concept. It takes up no land, you know, but, and it describes describe the part two. The part two is just a great big fun green that you, the T markers are on the green 
or maybe they're on the green at, at the end and you can, you, if you want, you can chip or, or hit a pitch, you know, but, but, but you can also start by putting. It's pretty simple. Uh-huh. 10,000 square foot green and you could nestle it in between holes. Move the whole, and, the cup around. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, at Mountain Shadows where we did 18 holes par three, I wedged one of these in between 17 and 18. It's a little bonus hole area. And they call it the Forest Wager, which wasn't my name. They named it, and I was honored to have my, my name put on it. But, uh, in fact, I played it yesterday. And both of us, by the way, had a, uh, I'll call it, we had about a 65-foot putt from the tee markers. Both players, my opponent and I, both scored three on the par two. So it's no pushover. Hard par, I, easy bogey, right? <laughs> Derek and I had a big discussion about what is what is too wacky, and I don't know if that's the exact term. What is what is too much of of an out of bounds idea, and it's only out of bounds when nobody shows up and plays it. And so your lighthouse hole, or your par two hole, or your six islands that you play to, it's only it's only wacky when nobody shows up. But when there's a crowd of people waiting at the at the at the ticket office to buy their their round of golf, it, then it isn't so wacky. That's that's a good point. And and um, uh, you know, I, I sketch other ideas. I mean, I, I I think that's probably what gets the best of us as we get older, isn't it? That you know, when we're when we're drawing imaginary holes as kids, you know, we're not afraid to do anything. But then when we get a job, we're afraid to do everything. And then as we take over and run our own businesses, we kind of forget all of that. And then maybe we, we wake up someday when we're older and we say, wait a minute. So, you know, the, the, speaking back of the, the ASGCA, when COVID first started, we, we created this junior golf design challenge. And, um, and we, we just wanted to give parents something, you, you know, that, that, they could have their kids do and the results of that which we published they're all on mm-hmm. ASGCO web- website some of them are absolutely fascinating concepts but again they th- these are kids that have nothing to lose no it's pure id it, exactly they're just they're just um they're just having fun and um it, you know it's amazing to see the array of hazards they've come up with <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah I've had that conversation with designers in the past as well, and they, it's it's the constant struggle to, you know, you you get more conservative as as you progress through your career, and and I think I've spoken to people who are actively trying to tap into that, you could call it the, the sense of being a child, or just just that fearlessness that that you naturally come into the business with, or that you grew up with when the stakes aren't so high, and it's trying to get that back. And that's why a lot why a lot of people surround themselves with with young shapers and. Uh, kids who may not be as proficient on machinery, but are raring to go and they're, and they're just bursting with ideas and want to prove something, you know, it's a good, it's a good balance. You need that, that kind of outside uh, unchecked ego to maybe motivate the design in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was going to point out for us that do you think that we forgot how to have fun in design? I think to some degree, I think, I think that, um, you know, part of my message, I really had three prongs to my message when I, uh, 
came in as president and, and, and interestingly, I got to share them with more people than just our members. Typically the president would just come in and, you know, give a speech called the president's speech at one of our meetings, our annual meeting. And that's the end of it. You know, 85 people see it and, and, you know, then they go have some cocktails and a putting contest and <laughs> get up. And, and 84 the- forgot about it. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Yeah. Um, but the, but my three messages were, we need to keep being creative because there's been some wonderful things. I mean, look at what Gil did, uh, you know, the, the, the cradle and, and, and I, I have high hopes for the Peter Hay course at Pebble beach. And, you know, I think, I think all of these short courses that we're seeing and these alternative courses are really fun. The second thing is I think less is more. I think we, we need to really focus on is, is the best way to express golf with 150 acres you know, and a lot of water and 7,000 yards, par 72. Is that really the standard? I'm not so sure it is. And then the third thing, which maybe gets to your question, Jim, is, um, is, is the game, have, have we really solidified the game? Is it, is it only clubs and balls and is it only fairways and tees and greens and hazards that are really, my gosh, I mean, hazards. I mean, if you really think about it here in America, there are really two kinds of hazards. And on a good day, I could come up with five or six. Okay. But I don't see a lot of Oakmont ditches being built on courses. You know what I mean? I, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I don't see a lot of designers doing things like that. But if that's it, then I, I guess that's it. My, my point would be, and I make this comment uh, in my little video message, but that is, there's probably no other group in golf that has the DNA and the right brain sort of creative passion to maybe think about the game itself. And are there different ways to play this game? And are there different ways to enjoy golf courses? Are there different ways to experience something that maybe could be called golf, but is slightly different? Um, I think there's a lot of young people out there that would love to go out on a golf course with a, with a, with a bunch of drones and stand on the tee and have some sort of game they play where they maybe drop balls from a drone. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that's golf, but it could be certainly played on a golf course if you, if you made a game out of it. And so back to your comment about fun, I think that as designers, I know it sounds scary and some people won't embrace it, but, um, I just think that maybe the, the game has changed a lot in 400 plus years. And, and I would think that it, there's room for change going forward, maybe not to change the game, but to have multiple ways to express the game. There's I, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's certainly a, uh, an argument to be made for that. Um, I want to touch on this, this concept of fun though. It seems like we all want to talk about golf course uh, or the game of golf as being fun and you know that's been sort of like the tag word for the especially for the last few years you know it's fun 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 and, and i i think that's in the right place i think that will do more than almost anything else to to keep people involved to keep keep the game fresh to keep attitudes fresh to introduce if you introduce somebody to a golf course and it's fun to play and they don't lose balls and there's no rough and they can just find it and hit it that's great but what took so long for golf to get to this place. I mean, we spent decades building golf courses that were not fun, that were 
championship quote unquote courses. There was a fetish for difficulty and severe hazards for a long time. And a lot of the people who've been, you know, in the business for a long, long time, suddenly the light bulb goes on and says, oh, we should make golf fun. What took so long to get to this place when we were in a completely different frame of mind, even uh, 15, 20 years ago? That's a good question. I think, first of all, there's a balancing act to be had. So I, I remember playing Myopia Hunt Club outside of Boston years ago. And um, uh, th- there was a professional out there who had taken some little kids, I mean, five, six-year-old kids out to the one of these coffin bunkers on the edge of a green. You know, this thing was probably six, seven feet deep, you know, with big, steep embankments. And I'll never forget watching this little group, you know, maybe six, seven kids, all real young, on on the opposite side of the bunker is the green, you know, hitting little lob shots over the green. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, this guy's really punishing these little kids, you know, making them hit this, this uh, little wedge shot or sand wedge shot over the green. And I asked him about it later when I got in, I said, I saw you out there with the kids. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, a few years ago, I took them out to a green and we just chipped at it and they all, thought it was boring as could be. And they wanted to go over and hit over the bunkers <laughs> because it was more challenging. And I, I thought, well, that's awesome. You know, that's really awesome. In other words, that's showing the spirit of the golfer right there. You know, they want to be challenged, but I also think they want scoring success. So I think, I think the balance is, it's really a, a, a it's a, you know, the old saying, it takes a village, right? I mean, you have to have the golfer play from the right tees maybe play the right course, you know, take on the right thing. You have to have the architect create the, the palette to make it all work. Um, and, you know, and then you got the management thrown in there to, to set rules, you know, like I, I don't think you can go to Pebble Beach and play the back tees, right? But there are a lot of courses, they don't care, right? You just go there and maybe they have a miserable time. Whereas if they were up on the, they, there's a client of mine, who has a course that Jack Nicholas designed. And uh, I think they have seven sets of tees. I mean, you know, seven sets of tees, that's a lot of tees. Well, the course is 8,100 yards from the back. So, I mean, yeah, it's a good thing. Once you get there, you have seven sets of tees because I couldn't play 8,100 yards. You know, the, the question is what tees do I play? Cause, cause I think the idea is what you're getting at is you want to have scoring success, which equals fun. I mean, who doesn't want to have a chance at Eagle or a couple of birdies in a round, right? Well, that's, so, yeah. I mean, that, that, not to interrupt, I'm sorry, but versus no. the alternative, that's, that's what I think the kind of yeah. the light bulb moment that seems mm-hmm. to have occurred in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I, uh, but again, you have to have the golfer's mindset and the course, you know, the, the management. And then you have to have, you know, the architect has to put, those things in place, right? I mean, if it's totally impossible, no matter what tees you're playing or whatever, and someone that can't get the ball up in the air and carry a certain number of yards can't manage it, then then I guess we've failed, right? So um, why why you were at, you asked the question why? Mm-hmm. I think you're right. There was a fetish for these hard, difficult. You know, it was a badge of honor. You know, to develop a golf course that was difficult and hard and. And you look at some of the words and the descriptive ads of courses back in the 70s and 80s, and it was, you know, tear and treacherous and, 
you know, the, the, you know, and, 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 and I guess some of those things are good because when we go to Disneyland or, or someplace, we, we want to sort of be terrified, don't we? You know, I mean, if we, if we go to the certain resort, one of the popular things is to go out on the scuba boat and be dropped off into a cage with sharks surrounding you. Okay. So that's just <laughs> not human <me>. nature. Well, <laughs> not me either, but, but I mean, it's a popular thing to do. So when, when I wrote the book on routing, one of my contributors was Ed Sadala, Dr. Sadala, who was an environmental psychologist. And, and, you know, he taught me some very valuable lessons like elevated tees, for example. Why do we like elevated tees as golfers? Because way, way back in our DNA as humans, that was the safest place to be, was up on top of a hill looking out over the savanna where you could see the wild animals and the bands of, of enemies coming. And why at zoological parks is one of the best exhibits ever being down below the lions and the tigers looking up at them because you feel vulnerable, but you're safe at the same time. So in other words, that is the worst place for a human to be when tigers are nearby is down in a, in a, in a, you know, <laughs> low place because now the tiger's looking at you. So I, I don't, I think that, I don't know about you, Jim, but I, I've heard Jack Snyder always used to say um, a certain amount of intimidation on a golf course is good but it still needs to be playable and enjoyable. So, you know, if you can make a hole look kind of more treacherous maybe than it is, maybe that's the way we win sometimes. And I don't disagree with that one bit, but you know what surprised me, Forrest? I loved your video, by the way. I hope that Derek can somehow link that up. I will. I'll put so it in the show notes. Please do, because yep. you're, you are absolutely right, Forrest, that the, the message that the, the president gave to – 85 society members or 120 society members just kind of left out the door when everybody uh, was done with the meeting. But the, the message that you sent and the message that you gave in your video really captured the essence of what a designer does. He finds that piece of land. He molds it. He shapes it. He uses it to the best of his ability. He finds a routing that is somewhat challenging, but in my case, more fun and rewarding. We all like a challenge. We all want a bunker to carry, as those kids did a myopia. But it seemed like for the longest time that we were building golf courses that were harder and harder and harder. And I just think that the message to be funner is way more appealing to the next generation of golfers. No, I, I agree. And, and, and I appreciate your comments on that. I mean, it was, it was kind of making lemonade out of lemons, you know, with COVID not having an annual meeting, uh, you know, in, in 2019 uh, uh, or 2020 rather. And, um, and so the idea to do this video partly inspired by my, my actress daughter who said, well, dad, why don't you do something? unique, you know, think outside the box. And so we did, and it, and it's turned out well, I've gotten a lot of good comments on it so far. Now, I guess everyone's afraid to give me a criticism of it, but um, I, I, I appreciate your comments. It's very nice of you to say. Well, you just talked about best use of land. You talked about 
finding what you could in the landform, the beauty, the usage of that land. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a real quick quote from your first president, Donald Ross. He said, build each hole in such a manner that it wastes none of the ground at his disposal. Wastes none of that ground at his disposal. And yet, 75 years later, your video says the same thing. Waste no ground, use the best of it at his disposal. And I just think to myself, man, that video was spot on. Your ideas were spot on. Will that transform to other people? And you're right. The Gil Hanses, Bill Coors of the world, they're already doing cool stuff. But the best use of the land, your president, first 75 years ago, Ross said, best use of the land. You said it in your video. He's closing the circle. But let's talk about the elephant in the room. Architects can't do much of anything unless they, they have a developer or a golf course owner who allows them to do something. And perhaps that's been the greatest shift we've seen in the last 20 years is we have developers like Rick Kane or Mike Kaiser or Mosaic Group uh, on the grand scale who have also figured out that golf doesn't need to be secondary to real estate. We don't need to wedge holes into small corridors that fall off into retention water ponds because you need them for drainage, that you can use a piece of land for the purpose of golf and not for something else. And in doing so, they allow creative architects to build fun golf, adventurous golf. And without the developers kind of having that aha moment and saying, we're going to use land for golf and and not uh, to try to sell homes or or uh, you know uh, try to trick this property up so we can max out our green fees for a country club of a day type of experience. Without that and that move in mentality, no architect can can make much of a move toward the type of of fun explorative golf that we've seen you know in the last few years. Yeah, I think I think you know I'm, I'm sure there's an exception. Maybe if if you if you were trying to make a rule there, there might be an exception to it. But um, I think one of the things that's changing is uh, you take Mike Kaiser for example. I mean, I hear that his son or sons—I I can't remember if it's two or one—but I mean that there are younger people coming in, two two sons. So there are younger people coming in to to lead the pack. I, I think sometimes we we uh, I, I remember working in a. Uh, not a particularly celebrated um, environment, but a, you know, like an age restricted community kind of helping them with their golf course a few years ago. And um, I remember there were, there were comments from some of the people there about something like native landscaping or like native grasses and whatever. And um, it occurred to me, it dawned on me that, well, wait a minute, the age restriction here is 55 years you know you could move into this community but a lot of the people i was working with were in their 80s and people that were 55 who were coming over let's say from california to arizona or from you know the midwest to retire these are people that had a totally different set of values you know maybe maybe to them landscape should be more passive and not be parkland you know with wall to wall grass and so i think that in in the golf business, the the management companies, um, you know, I know I know the 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 guy uh, that that was responsible for, you know, working on on the mosaic 
project and, and I knew him from Disney and, you know, he was a younger guy, you know, I mean, a little bit younger mindset, you know, and I think that we're getting people in to run projects now that are younger and younger that are going to have completely different uh, life experiences with which to guide or, or to mold what the golf architect is doing. In other words, the goals that you might have heard 30 years ago that Bill Coor, let's say, might have heard 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And, um, and I do think there's room. I've always said, yes, there are some terrible examples of residentially driven golf courses, but there's also some not bad ones. And, and I, I push back a little bit. And I think it's, it's an amazing thing if we could get people to live on golf courses. But I think, I think it's like, it's like a, too much of a blanket statement to say that you can't integrate housing with a golf course. I mean, I think that's a challenge actually to golf course architects because what better homage to the sport of golf and the game of golf could there be than having a bunch of people actually live on the golf course? I point to St. Andrews. I mean, I, I guess you don't don't like living on a golf course, you should just wipe the city out and move the old course someplace out on its own where there's no one around it. But to me, that's a fascinating part of the old course is the fact that on one side, you have nothing but sea and openness. And on the other side, you have a dense village that's vertical. You know, it's to me, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But I think that what we're going to see, though, is the future of people that own golf courses and, and shape them and mold them and change them are going to be different. They're not going to be 60, 70 years old or even in their 50s, some of them. I, I, I sense this at some of the management companies right now where I, I'll go to a conference or a meeting or whatever. And, you know, there'll be some guy running a private club who's 34 years old. You know, I think, whoa, you know. He has different life experiences. I expected to meet someone in their 50s, maybe, you know. So. Well, I can tell you, Derek, that I would encourage a development around a golf course that people could walk on a Sunday like they do at St. Andrews. Some of the m nicest people I ever met was on a Sunday at St. Andrews as they walked their dog around the golf course. I do agree with you a little bit on that, Forrest, is that, that, that the golf course should be a park. It, it is a park. It should yeah. be open to all. People. Just, just try taking one away from a community and see what happens. You know, that's that's you know what what they're saying is when you go in to close, not when you any of us, but I mean when a when a uh, a developer or someone or a city goes in to close a golf course, what the neighborhood is really saying when they're holding up signs and pressuring the city council to, you know, this is my park. This is what I drive by every day. What I look out on, you know, maybe where I walk my dog or, or where we're able to walk over and, you know, and get a beer or something. This is my park. This is the place that I, that I have taken for granted all these years. And of course the shame of it is a lot of those people have done just that. They've taken the golf course for granted and only 10, 15% of them maybe play the game. But, um, but that's exactly what they're saying without saying it. That's a park. That's my park. It's my <laughs> Don't take it space. away. Well, look, there's a difference between golf courses in, in cities and urban settings and golf courses that are uh, attached to real estate 
plan developments. Um, I think we can all get on board with golf courses located uh, in towns, being part of the community, part of the city. Um, there were a lot of thousands, perhaps, of golf courses that were, were uh, an afterthought to a uh, developer's plans to sell housing. Um, but on this note of, of golf courses located in cities, Forrest, when I, I wrote a column for Golf Digest a few months ago about short courses and the proliferation of, of these and, and how many are attached to resorts, and it's it's kind of a new... Um, they're popping up kind of all over the place now, and they have been for the last few years, and it's a really nice amenity to have when you go to band and you can play the preserve or you go play the sandbox as sort of like an, an after-dinner drink at, at Sand Valley. And um, obviously, we, you mentioned the cradle, and there are new courses that are coming up. And Forrest, you wrote... Uh, an email to me afterwards and, and talking about the concept of these short courses, but being in a standalone facility. And I, I wrote about that in the column as well. What's the viability of getting a place like the sandbox at Sand Valley and migrating that into um, or into or on the outskirts of a town? So you don't have to travel hundreds or thousands of miles to, to get that experience, but it's right there as an amenity to the players in your local community. Is this something that uh, is feasible? Is it desirable? Do would 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 golfers respond to these sh- non-traditional short courses in their communities? I think, I think the possibility exists for that. Of course, the 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 simplest equation is that some of these non-traditional, you know, let's say non-eighteen-hole facilities, they occur and seem to do very well when they're married with a regulation or longer course or multiple. So, you know, you take band and dunes, for example, the, the short course there functions because it's an adjunct to the experience of band and dunes and, um, and Pinehurst and Sand Valley. I think those are examples where, you know, they're, they're adjunctive to simple equations. For instance, Mountain Shadows, the little 18 hole course that I did, that's a standalone thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's all the land that's there. And I think what makes it work is that it is 18 holes. So there's a couple of elements at play. First of all, from an outing perspective or a, or a business conference at the hotel, they can accommodate a hundred players or 90 some players because they have 18 holes. It becomes less viable if I had done 13 holes or 12 holes or nine holes. In other words, as, as a venue, it becomes less viable. And also something that they've heard, which, which I suspected, but I've, I've now been proven correct, is that people have said when they go to Mountain Shadows and they stay and they play the golf course, you know, I didn't think I'd like a little short course, but what's really, and it didn't take me four hours, but it was still 18 holes. And I think there's some value to that. I'm not saying they should all be 18 holes, but I, I think when they're standalone facilities, they probably have a better chance to be viable if, if they, if they meet some threshold that's, that's, uh, that's common knowledge in golf, like 18 holes or maybe even nine holes or something. But I think that your question is probably site-specific, neighborhood-specific, region-specific, et cetera. Can you do something small and have it be standalone? I think the answer is it's viable because we don't want to do something that just is not viable and doesn't have a return on the investment in some way. 
shape or form. I mean, the return on the investment isn't always money. You know, sometimes it's keeping people occupied and giving kids something to do and whatever. It doesn't always have to have a monetary contribution. Do you, I did the punch bowl putting course at Banner Dunes Resort. And I've often thought that I could take that idea, thanks to Mike Kaiser's willingness to uh, have a, a, a putting course at his resort. I often thought that I could take that idea to Central Park and convince the, the authorities to let me build a putting course and that it would introduce the game to millions of people in the captive audience in Central Park. But, but you said it has to be attached to a golf course so people know that it belongs somewhere. It's adjunct. Well, I think it helps. It, it helps. I'm not sure it has to, but I think, okay. but I think it gives it a great head start. I love the idea of what you just described. I think that the, but again, it's going to be site specific. I think if any place, Jim, Central Park would be, I don't want to say a no brainer, but it would be awesome because you have a population there. I mean, just think for if you if you figured out how many people visited Central Park and and then you took eight percent of them or whatever. Those are people that even if they didn't have their clubs with them, might go up and pay five dollars, you know, to get a ball and a club and and spend just just like they would ice skating uh, in Rockefeller Plaza. I've I've sailed. I'm not a I'm not a yachtsman. And I got the boat at Central Park and I tried to get the boat in the in the pond and <laughs> sail around the pond like all the other kids did. And I, but I'm not a yachtsman. So I'm thinking if I take this putting course to Central Park and I introduce, as you said, a captive audience, a site location specific, and I handed them a ball and a putter and said, This is part of the game of golf. Why couldn't that work and why hasn't it been done? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, and again, I think that what I was getting at uh, was, was just that there's a head start if you do that in conjunction with an existing golf facility. But certainly I don't believe that they have to be exclusive in, in, you know, in, in the thinking. I've, I've often said, too, that you know, these lightweight balls like the almost golf ball, the P5 ball, I'm fascinated by those because it's really hard to get hurt by them. You know, in other words, you, you, you can't really do much damage with them because they're lightweight. And I think that golf has a place, um, you know, in multifamily developments, you know, the, the green spaces between buildings and things like, I think you could just have a ball creating little, even in, even in regular parks where other people are recreating to be able to lay out a little golf course. With the P5 ball, you're not going to be hurting the family picnicking or the people playing frisbee or the dog walkers. Um, you could all coexist, at least at least in theory. You could like coexist. a frisbee golf course. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, with the little P5 ball, it's so lightweight that if if something did go wrong, you know, and it goes over into the birthday party you know, over to the left, it's, it's not going to seriously injure someone. You know, it's, it's more like a Frisbee being flown over there, you know. And, and couldn't we use that type of ball on an 18-hole golf course or a nine-hole golf course? Absolutely. And people are. People. Yeah, people are. And absolutely they could. And um, uh, I mean, I, I'm just a firm believer in all of these ideas. Do they, 
I, I can't tell you, of course, whether they'll all work. I just think that it's fun to dream and to be um, always thinking of, of different ways to, to express the game and, and to fulfill the, fulfill the, I mean, I think we'd all agree that there's a golf is a, it's an attractive thing when, especially when you play it the first time and you think, wow, this is really fun. This is a lot like anything else I've done before. In and you're right. Open space. Yeah, you're right. In too. An open um, space. I just, I keep talking about that, Derek, open space, golf courses. What would I rather have a golf course or another 25,000 square foot box? I'll take a golf course. I'll take open space. I'll take a forest P5 golf balls. I'll take his little islands. I'll take his part two. It goes on and on and on. Forrest, make it happen, would you? I, I'll do my best. Well, Forrest, one of the things you said in your video, and, and I did not know this, I thought it was fascinating, is that I guess this, the society tabulated all the acreage that golf courses occupy, I don't know, I guess across the whole country, and it was, uh, was three-quarters of a million acres of essentially green space. These are natural habitats. I mean, there's they're not just... Uh, wildlife refuges, but but this is preserved green space. That's what golf is and can be at its best. Is a is our urban parks. You know, this is these. They're not um, they're not parking lots. They're not condominiums. This is a habitat for wildlife and a place where people can go and get fresh air and exercise. And golf hasn't done a very good job of expressing that and selling that point uh, over the last generation or two. Well, I think it, that that statistic was interesting, and and we came up with that after, after exactly what you just said, trying to summarize what, what the golf course um, superintendents and the builders and the club managers and the owners were trying to express. So in other words, they were trying to say, well, we, we are doing a good job. You know, we're our stewards of the land. We're doing the, we're doing better and better and better as, as we go along. And uh, so I remember taking that on and, and I thought, well, is there an easier way to say this? Because, you know, I was trying to think if I'm in front of the Audubon people or the Sierra Club people, what, you know, I only have so much time, right, before they might lasso me and haul <laughs> me out of the building and do something terrible to me. So um, that was the easiest way I could come up with expressing it is we did a, a very in-depth calculation of all those, you know, 15 plus or minus thousand golf courses in the U.S., and how much of the area of those golf courses was truly undeveloped, basically forest or wetlands or, you know, open water or streams or broken ground, as I call it, you know, areas that aren't being cultivated and used by golfers. And it was a big number. And to think that it's as big as Yosemite National Park, that does get people's attention. What's interesting about it is that's land that for the most part, private owners or other people, not not the public, really, is is taking care of those areas. Okay, so the water that's going into those wetlands, in many cases, is is runoff or borrowed water, um, or it's effluent that the treated water that you know is going back into the ground, or it's drainage ways, or natural forested areas. In some cases, as we all know, it is habitat. You know, I mean, look at some of the dunes courses we have around the world and and you know there's very sensitive habitat in and around the golf courses so um that was that was and, and i appreciate you bringing that up because that, that was a way of just expressing in simple terms one way just one way that golf 
is a very good neighbor and, and can be thought of as a very good um, part of the built environment. And another one is the borrowing of water and the filtration of water. Most people don't realize that, but almost every golf course is, is doing its job to take water and return it back to the ground. And to say that golf courses use water is not really accurate. It's like saying ski slopes use water. No, they don't use water. They borrow it. You know, they, 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 right. they, they temporarily hold water, if you will, mm -hmm. and then put it back where it came from in, in many cases. And in doing so, by the way, that 18 hole golf course is producing oxygen for the, the planet. And it's doing it through natural open space, you know, plant sunlight, oxygenation exchange and 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 that it's a very valuable thing like jim says you know i'd take a golf course over a big box any day well of course we need big boxes because we have to eat and store stuff and you know i mean whatever but yeah golf courses are pretty darn good things when you really slice it indeed one of the i guess maybe the, the final thought for me forrest is you know i i i'm with you i applaud all kinds of innovation um i i think the more diverse landscape we have for golf the the more entertaining it can be and you wrote or you said in the video you know you you said you know you would like to see golf be fun enjoyable diverse and exciting um those are those are great words and and uh, who couldn't get on board with that and you've talked about some of your ideas uh kind of outside the box ideas about how to change golf or make golf more attractive to other people or just kind of expand the horizons of what golf could be what if we didn't do anything? What if golf just continued to be in the hands of, of you and in the hands of Jim, you just continue to build good, solid golf courses. And, and we didn't explore all these other concepts. We didn't, we're never going to see an eight hole course. We're never going to see the short course standalone. We're not going to see the, the, <laughs> the punch bowl in central park. It's my, I guess what I'm getting at is it's, it's very noble for us to pursue other ideals and, 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 Ex expand the the possibilities of what golf is but what if golf's just okay the the way it is it, it, can we just continue to have golf as we've known it in the past or do we have to innovate i guess that's another way to put it i i would say we have to because i see the generations coming and they have totally different um they, they're changing rapidly. Their world is, is completely different. And the, the world, as, as they mature through life, their world will be completely different. I think that um, most of us who are, let's say, uh, in our 40s, 50s, 60s or older, we have seen change. But for the most part, you know, the change that we've seen, people still kind of have matured and, and you know, they still go through different life uh, periods and, and times in their life. And it's, it's different, but it's also very similar. I think this new generation, several of them, you know, I've been talking about kids now that are under 10 and kids between 10 and 20 and, and those between 20 and early 20s. I think that they are going to be exposed to things that are just much, much different. Their idea of a vacation, of a house of a job, of a meal, of whatever is going to be a lot different 
than what we've experienced. And we're already seeing that. I mean, look, look at the changes that, have, that, that we've seen in life in general. Um, if anyone told me that I would be a slave to a smartphone, you know, 25 years ago, you know, I, I, and, and it would have had all these things on it, these apps and stuff. I would have said, well, I don't, that's probably not for me or whatever, mm-hmm. but I mean, who can get away from that? Right. It's now part of life, you know, and it, and it sucks our time away. And I think that's the thing that probably answers your question the most. Golf takes time, no matter what size it is, whether it's three holes or, or 30 holes, it takes time. So golf needs to compete for time. So there you go. It, if it, I think that if golf just stays the way it is, that's probably the deciding factor that will make it less and less and less and less and less relevant will be the fact that not, nah, sorry, don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. So yeah. you would, you would I mean, see I, a, 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 the participation numbers continue to dwindle more, co- more golf courses closing. I mean, here's the, the sad thing. We don't like to admit it too readily. We all know it, but we don't need any more golf courses. We've got enough courses in the world, in our country, in our states, you know, there might be a, a place that's underserved here or there, but we don't need to build any more golf really. So, and, and then this desire to always have to think we need to grow the game. Maybe, you know, so the question becomes, are we, do we change golf to the point that it's not golf anymore? Do we just, what if we just left left it well enough alone. Jim, I, I, I know what you, you're going to say about this, but, but you know, that, that's the, so there's this tension, you know, do we continually try to like innovate our way through and into the next generation as you're talking about Forrest, or can we just say, you know, golf, golf's not for everybody. We're just going to like let it ride out and we've got great courses and we can fix the ones that need fixing and, and those who want to well, play, before, play. Before I step in it, let me, let me have Jim answer then. I want to hear what he's saying. <laughs> I could go a thousand different ways, but Forrest, I agree with you that, like you said, that the the smartphone, that kids were going to carry a smartphone with them and that they were going to use that to to direct their life through communications, through guidance, through where's the closest gas station, to where's uh, the food outlet, to where's the the closest In-N-Out burger. I mean... Little did we know that that was going to happen. And I have to agree with Derek that do we, do we continue to change the game to keep people attracted? Or do we just present the game in a different way to keep people attracted, like the putting course at, at Central Park? And is it really that important? One of the things that I've always talked about, and you're familiar with this website uh, for us called golfclubatlas.com. And they have these these ideas about doing different things to attract golfers or just letting it be the way they want it to be. Like they've always grown it to play. And, and, and this is how I play. I walk and I carry my bag and I'm not going to get on it. I'm not going to have a trolley. Uh, I, I just, you know, the foundation of golf. Those are all cool things. But what if, Forrest, what if you're living in Phoenix, yep. right? Phoenix. What if I picked up a bag of, of clubs, two or three bags, uh, a, a bag of with two or three clubs and a couple of golf balls, and I played down a drainage grassways of Phoenix 
And then when I got tired of playing, I dropped off those that bag and those clubs in a little uh, uh, a little box, and then I went to go eat. And then I played my way back home up those drainage ways that crisscross all of Arizona and, and Phoenix, particularly. What if that was the game? Uh, sure. Would that be okay? well? I think I think that that's you know kind of you you're after my own heart there in terms of being able to to think outside the box. Um, I just think that I think this concept of time is very relevant to, you know, Derek's question about, do we just keep it the same or do we change it? I, I really do sense that we need to have options for golf that can range from the five hour or longer days or the, the, you know, the buddy trip, you know, where you go and immerse yourself and you just play golf and, and whatever. But I think that more and more we need to create these little moments, you know, that are that are uh, like top golf, you know, as an example. I mean, you know, or, or miniature golf. I mean, I grew up on miniature golf courses, and and you're what you're talking about in Central Park is sort of real golf, but in miniature yeah. golf uh, fashion, just just like the uh, you know the the uh, the putting course at St Andrews, course, you know, yeah. the, the lady ladies putting course and and i think that um i think that golf i think the time factor is where i see um there, there's a generation out right now that um I've, I've heard two stories recently about young people that are redoing their house or building a new house and in one case a client of mine uh his wife is an interior designer and it's one of his sons that's building a new house and so the parents, as great parents, said, well, would, would you like mom's help, you know, with the interior, you know, because this house is like a second or third house or something. OK, the answer. No, I don't think. No, we don't need that. We're just going to go on Pinterest and house and and, you know, we'll just pick out a bunch of stuff and have it shipped and, and delivered. And what we don't like, you, you know, we'll send back and get new stuff. They don't have time for an interior designer. Okay. And, and it, by the way, it's not because they don't like the concept of interior design. It's just, there's a new way for people in their twenties to decorate a house and to go about, you know, what, what used to be in the old days, something that maybe you would go to a professional and get some help in some form or fashion. And, and I'm just using this as one example. There are hundreds and thousands of examples of things like this that are just changing the way things happen, you know, in, in, in our world right now. And I think that the time element is, is a real big part of driving how the younger generations are approaching everything, everything from, from what they do to where they work, to how they get there, to where they vacation, to what sports and pastimes. Now I'm not saying, I think that there's still, I think that once you get someone kind of interested in golf, there's still this magic of being relaxed and spending four hours or more, you know, out playing the game, but it's going to be hard to, to bring people into the game. If that's the only format. Okay. If the only format, which, which really Jim plays into your whole central park thing, if I can get a putter and a ball in someone's hand pretty young, you know, who might not have experienced golf, they kind of have fun with it, I think, after a while, you know. So, but, but if you, but if you, if you, 
bring them into the game by saying, well, this is the only way to play is with a bag full of 14 clubs, you know, and, 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 and $400 worth of sportswear and shoes and, and uh, whatever, if that's the only way to get involved. Oh, and by the way, not only do you have to invest all that stuff or rent it or whatever, but you also have to take a lesson and you also have to spend four and a half hours and you're going to show up at 10 15 and we're going to tee off at 10 30 and, and the marshal says we have to be done at two 30 and then we're going to have lunch and yeah, you'll be home at three 30 or four o'clock. I think they're going to say I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. I mean, my daughter is an actress, right? And Hollywood movies are very rarely over an hour and 45 minutes anymore. I don't really know if we've noticed or not, but Hollywood's not going to change. And by the way, if I owned a movie theater chain, I don't know if I would really be thinking that's a long-term model because right now there's a huge shift over to streaming content, as we all know. And I think that's the future of entertainment. I'm not saying again, that there wouldn't be a venue to go to a theater, but the days of having all these multiplex theaters in all these cities and all these communities and all these neighborhoods, and you add them up and there's, I don't know, 14,000 of them in the United States and Canada or whatever. I think that with streaming, that's changing a little bit, you know, just, just like the, uh, the fact that the laptop I'm talking to you from no longer has a place to put anything into it. Like there's right? no CD <laughs> like, drive. There's no CD drive. So you know, I still can't I have, go over that. I have thousands of CDs yeah. with, with, the things on them. I know I have, and I have all these have music no CDs and I can't play them. I guess I can, maybe my car still has one. Yeah. But if someone had told you that 15 years ago, when you were buying music CDs or when you were, when you were, Hey, how about this? You were probably buying a rack or something to put them in. That's right. how much you yeah. thought you were going to still have CDs. Yeah. It was like a piece of furniture. In so the I think I exactly, I think that golf, um, we need to, this time thing is very important. I think it's sometimes underrated. Um, people, they have the same time. They always have. There's, you know, that hasn't changed. They just have too many influences now to, to consume their time. And things happen much quicker, as I said earlier. So I think that the, the time element of golf is something that I'm very interested in. By the way, that doesn't mean an 18-hole course can't still exist, 7,000 yards. But I would be suggesting that they figure out ways that you could go play five or six holes or do something out on that 18th course that might take a little less time. Yeah. Well, I think all all these thoughts come from a good place. One thing that Jim and I have talked about before on this podcast is what you need to do more than anything else, what golf needs to do is just find a way to increase access and just get somebody on the golf course with the club in their hands and the opportunity somewhere, somehow to hit a ball. It could be a putter and a ball. That's that's the selling point for me for golf is swing the club. That first time you make nice clean contact, a nice strike on the ball, there's something magic that happens there. And anything that golf can do to increase those opportunities is going to benefit the game. And there are a lot of different ways to go around and, and, and propose doing that. We've talked about a lot of them on this uh, podcast today, but I think we're all moving in the same direction, coming at it from a good place. Agreed. Well, I thank you for having me on and uh and it i'm obviously passionate about a lot of these things and um so yes it was was fun it was fun to talk about them and now of course i'll spend the rest of the day thinking okay how do i implement some of those things 
Well, we, we've got we've got the uh, we've laid out the foundation for you, and you've 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 got an opportunity in the uh, with the society to carry on. You'll have many more discussions like this. We could go on and on, but we'll leave it at there for us. And that was a a, a great conversation, and uh, enjoyed getting your thoughts. Great talking with you. Thanks again. Thank you, El Presidente. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Jim. Well, that was great to catch up with Forrest. And, you know, as the president of the ASGCA now, you know, I we obviously know we talked about it that, you know, he, he's got a, a program that he wants to put forward and, and a vision and every president who sits in that chair ought to have one. But we also spent a lot of time about talking about the different ideas of golf, different ways to get people interested in golf, taking golf into the future, maybe not being bound by the conformity that that we we tend to think of when we think of golf how we play golf different types of golf courses we talked about forest ideas for for different holds different elements of the game different ways the game can i guess sort of mutate take on different forms be more to more people you know and i'm and i mentioned it to forest i i'm not i don't i don't see golf going that direction jim i don't think there's a need for us to break away from the actual spirit of the game of a person hitting a ball with a club and trying to get the ball into the hole in as few strokes as possible or as as few as uh, one stroke better than your opponent based on your skill level and how you manage the terrain in front of you. I mean, that's the... That's what golf is and always has been, and I'm I'm very reluctant, if not uh, outright opposed to to spending too much time thinking about golf in any other context than that. We can play around with the number of holes, as as you mentioned. You know, if 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 there's a property that that has is perfect for more than 18 holes, absolutely, because the point is you're still playing golf. But he also talked about Forrested about some other just interesting golf hole ideas, which I, I think that's a little more interesting for for me to think about. And he has some ideas of golf holes that he'd like to build someday. And 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 I know you've mentioned to me in the past you've had some ideas about golf holes that that you'd like to build at some point that are maybe out of the the ordinary or, or outside the lines of what we would typically think. Do you think that every architect or golf course designer has a, a couple of holes in their mind that someday they would like to try to build? Obviously they do. Uh, we all dream. We all think. We all stare at the same landforms uh, in the topography maps uh, in our offices uh, when we get out in the field and we see and we think, how can I lay a golf hole on this land? And so your creative juices do get flowing. I have to agree with you that the concept of, of uh, a couple strokes teeing off and, and putting into a hole is a concept that is long-lasting. And to, to deviate from that would be not true to the spirit of the game. But every architect believes that he has an idea that may be novel and worth trying, but maybe apprehensive to think, I better not. People won't get it. They won't understand. And so the 18 holes of golf uh, stays true. But I can guarantee you every designer, every builder, every architect has a a few tricks up their sleeve. Maybe they're just afraid to do it, afraid to be criticized, afraid that it may not be accepted. And so it stays in the back of their brain, uh, never to be used. But I wonder what if they did. And as long as they didn't steer away from the concept of golf, 
as you and I have talked about, the concept of golf, hitting strokes, playing the ground, uh, playing the ball along the ground or in the air. Uh, I think that's where we need to stay. And if COVID hasn't taught us anything this year, people want to still play that game, be outside walking or in a cart. And golf's surgence in this time has proven that People still enjoy the game, and maybe we shouldn't steer far away from that. And Forrest, in his video, talks about what can golf course architects do for the future. Nothing wrong with thinking about something different. But as you said, let's not stray away from the concepts of golf. Right, and it it, it always strikes me that there's sort of a, a fine line. Maybe it's not so fine. Maybe it's a, a big black line between you know imagination and an over over imagination Forrest had a, a strong relationship with Desmond Muirhead we talked about that a little bit and Desmond was arguably one of the most uh, intelligent and creative and uh, imaginative designers that we've had in our game and he I think we can all agree that at certain times his imagination got the best of him when it came to building <laughs> golf holes and you know and some of it's really kind of cool to look at and, and you see these allegorical forms and, and these sort of fantasies created out of earth and uh, strange shapes that have a, a meaning to something else more maybe a, a stronger relation to an idea than to to a golf shot or a golf concept, but some of it uh, went overboard. You know, the famous, the most famous one that everybody can Google a picture of is at, um, is it Stone Harbor in New Jersey? Yes, sir. And yes, it was sir. the hole where it's a par three and you hit out to an island green shaped like a football. And then there are two floating bunkers that are actually separated by water from the green that are shaped like these gnashing teeth. So, I mean, if you, if you were lucky enough to miss the green badly enough, you could be in a bunker, but then you had to play a bunker shot over water onto a narrow green. And that kind of stuff is, is you know, it takes an interesting picture and you can talk about it. It's conversational, but um, you get very tired of playing that hole more than, you know, more than once. So, um, so it's, I think going back to what you were saying is, you know, I'm architects and designers, I'm sure have, have lots of ideas, but I wonder if, I wonder if they recognize sometimes that, that, that the time just isn't right for this idea, or if they just haven't had an opportunity to build that idea. Uh, we want to applaud creativity and imagination, but, um, when, when it can, when it goes wrong, it can go wrong fantastically. So, well, let me ask you this, Derek. Aren't we all looking for that next cool hole, that next imaginative way to play a par four or a par five? We're all looking for that. And when you find it and when you see it, you tell your friends and they want to go see it and play it. So maybe the jaws surrounding the green that Desmond Muir had designed at Stone Harbor was just a little too much for us. But we're always looking for that next cool, inventive, ingenious hole. Derek, I think that you would do the same as many of your readers, many of the people who seek out good golf course architecture. They're looking for the next cool thing. Desmond maybe was just a little too much. Too cool. and <laughs> Maybe too cool. But Forrest and his explanation of doing something different with golf, just trying to do something a little different. And we're all seeking that out when I go see golf courses, any new projects, any old projects. 
something I've never seen before. Yeah. So, so Jim, you know, you spend, you spend a lot of time looking at old golf courses, you've worked on them and I'm wondering, I'm, I'm guessing that this instinct that designers have to create something unique goes back, you know, to the earliest days of, of the design profession. Have you come across old holes that, that you think are truly distinctive and you haven't seen done before or can you tell like when you when you see an older course that that an architect might have done been the desmond muir head of his time and and <laughs> built something that was just a little too much great question and i'll and i'll say this to you with with all due respect to alistair mckenzie there's a hole the third hole at claremont country club in Oakland, California, right next to Berkeley. It's really right next to Berkeley, California. It's a par three downhill hole surrounded by bunkers. Very ominous shot. But out to the right of the hole is a mowed fairway. And you technically could hit your three iron or seven iron down the right side of the hole. On this fairway, the ball would roll all the way to bottom, to the bottom, wrap around to a little chipping area that you could chip up onto the green without having to cross any bunkers. That is as wild as I've ever seen a par three hole in my, oh, 10, 20, 30 years of looking at golf holes. And I think this is wild. Would anybody really do it? And I tried it and I played it and it works. But it's unconventional. And Mackenzie did it 1928, 29 at Claremont Country Club. But nobody ever plays that. I've told members, we'll just play down this fairway to the right and then chip up. But you see, it's very unconventional. They're not used to it. You may say that's way too bizarre. Mackenzie did it. Is it bizarre? Um. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds interesting. I will say that. Well, I wish I could post a picture of it, but it is a mowed fairway around a short one-shot hole that you could play down and then chip back onto the green with a good chip. You could par. You're probably not going to get a birdie, obviously, unless you chipped in, but it's a way to play around a green that's surrounded by bunkers. Very unconventional. I've never seen anything like it. And yet, nobody ever uses it. They don't think to play it that way. But it was thought about years and years ago, and I can't say it's one of the template holes that you would see on every McKenzie course, but in that case, it works. People, people back then probably played it that way if you didn't want to carry the ball over the bunkers. Very unconventional, but... One, it's a one-off. I've never seen it anywhere else. Yeah, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody is that I'm always, you know, over the last few years, like really questioned and pushed, you know, what what's next? What's the next breakthrough? Like what's what's going to be the, the game changer that comes next in, in golf architecture? And maybe that, you know, I, I'm curious to that. I think all good art has to have um, disruptions and innovators, you know, the people that come around and uh, every so often and, and, and reset the formulas. And then it, it starts a, a new wave or a new trend. You see it in, in all types of different art and, and uh, creative forms. 
But at the same time, Jim, aren't we just really looking for good, solid golf holes versus, you know, pedestrian holes? And and we that doesn't have to be any kind of groundbreaking thing. It can just be a good, solid golf hole on a good piece of ground that is engaging and interesting to play that produces a lot of different outcomes. Isn't that kind of, isn't that, maybe that should just be always the, the ultimate goal. Well, if I may read a quote for you, I'd, I'd really like to, I'd really like to insert this into the thought, and and it comes from a, a book that I've 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 read a lot. I've used in my master plans when I talk about golden age designs. It's a book called "Golf Has Never Failed Me" by Donald Ross. And if you don't mind, can I read this quote? Sure. And I quote: "When the British architect lays out the whole, he casts his eye over the country." and gets the idea of what he considers a golf hole in his brain. He lays it out that way and then says to the player, there's the golf hole, play it any way you please, end quote. And for me, who bleeds old blood, I have thought about that many times. I'll lay the golf hole out, there it is, Play it any way you please. And that to me is simple and to the point and without many words added to the description of the whole, play it any way you please, Derek. I like that. I like that. You know, and of course, certain certain factors have to be in play for that to work. One of them, you have to have enough room and a compelling piece of ground. But that that's always interested me is... And I know we've talked about on in the salon before, just lay things out there without an obvious roadmap of how to play the golf hole and, and let people go explore it, play it, you know, no, very few people that are, that play a golf hole are so accurate and proficient enough where they can place their drive in the same place every time and get to the points that they want to get to. You know, most of us, when we swing a, a, a driver are just trying to keep it within whatever the boundaries the of your talent level are, you know, get it in, in that between the quadrant somewhere <laughs> uh, so I can find it and play my next shot. And, 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 and the, the whole you're describing seems, you know, to allow for that, you know, because one day you're going to be all the way to the right. You're going to slice it or hook it, depending on how you play next day, you're right. going to be on the other side. But if you have that latitude, that hole can be anything you want it to be. And it's, you're going to keep coming back and wanting to play that golf hole versus, versus the golf hole with a, 27 yard wide fairway with a bunker on the on the left and a bunker staggered farther down on the right and if you hit, don't hit it with a much smaller quadrant than you're used to you're going to be hacking out of a bunker you know chipping it out and then scrambling around and i don't think many people unless you're a, a, a tournament player or, or a scratch golfer really find that level of challenge to be the compelling part of golf and to me Forrest is just trying to round up the troops and say, you know, it's time to think about architecture, uh, not the same old way, but maybe a new way. But for me, the old way, the simple way, play it any way you please. There's nothing wrong with that. But my job is to to entice you to to make you think about each hole and how you play it. But you're right. I still have to remember that some people, including me some days, the way I play, 
if I could just keep it within a 300 foot width corridor, uh, I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's wrap this up. I had, I had a qu- question I wanted to ask you and, and, and get your thoughts on this last topic. Obviously, as we as we know now, uh, Forrest Richardson is the president of the ASGCA. And I said this during the podcast, I, you know, and, and he was very kind of amenable to maybe changing things up and their protocols and how they accept. But Jim, I don't even know if, if you could get in or there was a time when even given your, your resume and, and who you were and, and where you've worked, that you'd have been accepted into the ASGCA. But that aside, do you have you ever had any, any desire to join that organization? Great question. Thanks for setting me up. <laughs> <laughs> the world is listening. <laughs> I have been asked by several people to join the American Society of Golf Course Architects, including the former president, Lee Schmidt, including Pete Dye's son, Perry, who said, I'll have my father speak on behalf of you uh, when he was alive. And so those people wanted me to be a part of the ASGCA. But I had said, including to Forrest one day in an airport in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I said to Forrest when he asked me, Jim, you should consider joining our society. And I said, Forrest, I don't know what I can offer the society, and I'm okay right now with what I'm doing, but based on the way that their criteria was, a set of plans, and you had to design something on your own, I did not qualify. And you're right, maybe those rules are changing. But it is a society. It is a group of people of like-minded thinking, the goal to create golf courses and uh, budgetary uh, 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 works and timelines that people work on. Uh, those are all people that who are in the same field, but there are a lot of people who are not a part of the society. Uh, and I don't know that you have to be their society to be credible, but at this time, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And I do I hate, I'm sorry to make this so long-winded because I've thought about it many times. There are people who I enjoy being around with. Bill Coor, Gil Hands. Uh, there's a young man that, that, uh, that worked for, with me, Perry Dye's office, Scott Sherman. He's a, a big ASGCA. Lee Schmidt, who worked for Pete uh, back in the day when I started with Pete. They're all people who I like being around, but... For me, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't serve uh, what I would like to do right now. I just want to be out restoring, building, designing golf courses, and I just don't see it as something that, that uh, I need right now, nor, nor, nor for sure do they, do they need me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually disagree. I think they do need you, and I think they need um, younger voices and younger people in the industry to join to keep the ASGCA relevant. And I, I and Forrest recognizes that, that to his credit. I just wonder though if it's too late. You know, I think I, I wonder if the 
the generation who are coming into the design over the last decade or so, I wonder if they're just programmed differently. If they don't, you know, the older guys who are in the society now who, who were, you know, were in the business in the 80s and, and 90s and the t- early 2000s, that's a different generation. You know, they're, they're organized. They maybe they're like the organizational men, you know, they, they believed in structures and societies and organizations. And I wonder if the, the younger generation, uh, the, all these, these shapers and builders and people who are really aspiring and uh, to be designers on their own, they're traveling, they're studying, they're steeped in history. They, they, they know so much, uh, they know as much as more than, than people twice their age. Uh, I, I just wonder if they're programmed to be more independent, you know, and they, they look to see Tom Doak and yourself, uh, people like that who are not in the society. And I, I wonder if it's just strange for them to think of, of the society and wanting to join if it's just not even on their radar. And in fact, I, I asked the same question that I'm asking to you right now to Jim Wagner in a, in a previous podcast from, from a year or so ago. And if, if listeners, if you haven't listened to the Jim Wagner podcast, I recommend you do so. He talks about this. He said for him, it just never crossed his mind. And a lot of the, the guys that they work with, he said, you know, it just never occurred to curse to them to, to do that. Why would they? And I, I just wonder if it's too late for the American Society of Golf Course Architects to to get the, to the new generation. I'm not sure how many people out there are interested in being part of a society organ, organization uh, or, or see what the benefit it is to them. What's your feeling on that? Well, I can tell you that the reason they, they started the society started by, among others, Donald Ross and the photo they took at Pinehurst Pinehurst number two at the resort, they're all gathered together like minds. They were going to go and spread the word about golf course architecture, and they were going to have a society of like minds. I understand why they started it, and I understand the camaraderie. Forrest and, and, and his love of the society and his mentor, Mr. Schneider, they were all a part of that society. But you're right, today's young kids... Today's group of people getting into the business, they can converse via Twitter. They can converse via photos and and they can share what they're working on and what they're doing. And they don't even have to meet. They don't have to even get together uh, and and at a resort or or in a big group. Uh, and have a meeting and talk about what they're doing. They share it with all of their peers via Twitter and, and, and social media. So maybe it is too late. I don't know. I can't be the judge of that. But I can tell you that there are a lot of young people who are still sharing ideas no different than what the society first intended to do back in the 50s. Share ideas, share things that they do, share ways that they tackle different aspects of golf course design and construction. But they just do it in a different way. They get on the phone, they send pictures, they do it by social media. And so maybe social media will replace the societies of of people gathering together to talk. You'll just talk over your computer or you'll Zoom or you'll send a photo of what you're working on today and ask people what they think. It's so different, Derek. It's so different Yeah, and, and not even that. They, they are also together more, I think, 
uh, in person on site working different jobs. I mean, the, the there's so much more of a of a, a, a trend in the business to uh, be mobile. You know, to yes. get out and, and to work different, work under different people in different places. You know, you finish one yes. job and and you're looking for your next job, and you go on, uh, sign on for two weeks here, and then then you you know you you fly someplace else or drive someplace else and work for somebody else. And when you get there, you 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 know you're you're paired with a couple other guys who did this who are doing the same thing. So yeah. there's just this yeah. network of of you know sort of like under forty under forty five year old. Uh, guys who have all this experience shaping working for so many different people and they all know yep. each other because they, they they combine on site they get there they're, they're hunkered down together for two weeks or more or maybe it's just even a couple days and then they move on so it's just a different world i think than uh when you know the the the, the plaid blazer generation uh was working when you know you were every all the all the real labor was done by contract workers and contract companies, yep. you know, and, and yep. that was a group of X amount of people who were employed by a, by a company. So they didn't really interact with other, uh, companies and, and their employees. So everything was more in a silo and now it's just spread out horizontally and there's just much more interaction. So there's not that need for, for a society to get together. Um, and it, you know, I went to my first ASGCA meeting earlier in 2020 and I I didn't do it then, which I wish I would have, but I was trying to think back on, I wonder who the, how old is the youngest member of the ASGCA? And I, I really don't know the answer, but I'm I'm wondering how many people under the age of 40 or, you know, they have in this society right now. Um, I'm sure there are a few, but um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of experience. I'll put it that way in, in the organization right now. Well, all you got to do is go walk on to a Gil Hand site, construction site, or a Bill Coor construction site, or name the architect, designer, builder, and you see two or three kids that, that you worked with uh, that were helping you, uh, helping me. And I go up and say, hi, how you doing? Uh, uh, what are you working on? There's a young kid who helped me at the Midland Hills this summer, 2020. His name is Zach Vardy. And very talented young man, very talented. Uh, he reads, he, he, he sleeps architecture. So he's working with me at Midland Hills. He just comes from working with uh, Kyle France in South Carolina, as you talked about. He's headed to work for Bill Coor at a project out west. And, and in between that, he's doing his own little work in Kansas. I mean, talk about social mobile. Right. That is, that is exactly what you talked about, mobile and social and interacting with different people. I don't think it happened back then that way. I don't think so either. But if, you know, if it's going to change, I, I really think that, that Forrest Richardson has the, the right perspective on this. It's, it's a noble goal. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's something that he has to uh, try to address. And if anybody can do it, I'm sure he can. He's a, he's a great guy. As you heard in our discussion, uh, fun guy to talk to a lot of opinions, great experience, uh, really cool guy. So it was great to talk to Forrest Richardson and, and we'll keep an eye on the, the, uh, ASGCA and see if he can, uh, you know, enact his plan and, and to bring in some, a new generation of, of designer into that, uh, into that old staid organization. Uh, I wish him all the best. Agreed. And he's so likable, as you know, and I was moved. I was honestly moved by his, his video presentation to his membership, the society. And I thought, 
this guy, he's got it, and he has ideas, and, and the video was so well done. I hope that you could put a link up to it, as I said before. You are absolutely right. He has the charisma. He has the vision, uh, and the uh, society will, will be better off for Forrest Richardson being the president in 2020. Agreed, and I will put a link in the show notes uh, at the website, and, and uh, if you're listening to this on your phone, scroll down. There'll be a link to that video. I hope everybody watches it. And Jim, it was great to talk to you. It was great to talk to Forrest. Thanks for uh, spending time with me again in the salon, and I look forward to the next time we get to do it. That was great. A lot of fun, as always. Thank you, Derek. So long, everybody. <laughs>